Within the depths of the strip mall of the damned lies a decrepit video store long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty safer spiders spinning their patient webs. Beyond the ancient batwing doors guarding the sepulcher where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles to scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and dissolution. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We, the brethren of the Legends Hall, do convene to judge this offering of cinema worthy of our esteem. What we have found as worthless hokum, let us call as judgment. Okay, now that the walls have stopped moving, I think, I think we're good. All right, uh, whatever that was. Uh, let's get back to scrutinizing this 1956 science fiction classic, Forbidden Planet. The guest, the guest is waiting outside. He keeps telling me to live long and prosper, but in like a sarcastic way. It's such a judgy thing to say. Scrutinizer Zachariah. Let me get the door, that being my title and all. Okay. All right. So I'd like to introduce our special guest, Tim Russ, actor, director, writer, producer, cinematographer, astronomy, musician. Uh, Damn, Tim, is there anything you can't do? Mr. Russ is best known for his role as Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager. But fun fact, he appeared in two other Star Trek series over the course of his career, making a total of three Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, not to mention his appearance in the Star Trek feature Generations. Beyond Trek, Tim's career is peppered with appearances in a broad variety of science fiction and fantasy roles since his debut in the 80s, including Starman, Spaceballs, Amazing Stories, The New Twilight Zone, and Alien Nation. Welcome to the Conclave, Tim. Glad to be here, guys. Good to be here. Welcome, welcome. I, I hope the directions we gave you to the strip all of the damned weren't too hard to follow. No, not at all. I've got GPS. I drew the map in crayon! <laughs> Lord, this... Oh, uh, get rid of that guy once and for all. This guy. So, without further ado, let's jump into the juicy stuff. Would you consider yourself more of a sci-fi guy or a fantasy guy? Um, I prefer science fiction um, because uh, in the sci-fi world, you know, you can tell stories in that genre that take place in present day and still have sci-fi elements in them. And those tend to be some of my favorite types of science fiction um, rather than necessarily the ones that all take place in the future. I like being able to jump from the uh, the time tenses, whether it's past, present, or future. And science fiction, in general, allows you to do that. So I prefer science fiction. Mm-hmm. And just in general, with Star Trek, it tends to hop around quite a bit. Yes, it does. <laughs> it does indeed. They managed to find a way to jump around at different time periods in, in terms of stories. You can do whatever you want in sci-fi. Mm-hmm. How old were you when you discovered science fiction? What, what drew I you think- to it? What were some of oh. your favorite pieces? Oh, I, 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 you know, when I was very young, you know, everything from, um, you know, War of the Worlds uh, to the Time Machine, um, movies like that, that just captivated me. I, you know, I was just, I was spellbound by these, these films when I first saw them. Um, and they were amazing. I used to watch the Twilight Zone, the original Twilight Zone, 
um, and and outer limits as well uh, when I was a kid. So uh, that's th those kinds of things got me hooked, and uh, I never looked back. I, I had uh, lots of British comics, so no Marvel, mm -hmm. no DC, but we had British versions of that kind of thing and they were all relentlessly bitter and dark and usually <laughs> politically satirical we we like our comics to be bitter over oh, here we really do all right kind of taking a spin on that same kind of thing you mentioned um how important science fiction is when it comes to storytelling and the different kinds of things we can touch on yeah. um do you believe science fiction is culturally important and and why if so um, yeah, absolutely. Because um, science fiction, you know, not unlike um, the Star Trek series that I worked on, that you know, the, the concept of science fiction, you can tell any kind of story and you can dress that story up in metaphors uh, using uh, characters who are in Star Trek's case alien, who could portray somebody who might represent someone from Earth in terms of our present day or even our past and tell a story that deals with the interactions of those characters with people who are from Earth and how they treat them, you know, based on the way that these alien creatures and cultures live. We can examine, um, you know, a, an alien culture and compare that alien culture to, to, to human beings. Um, the movie Arrival that was out not long ago, um, mm. you know, how would you communicate with an alien species and how is that species different from us? The differences in these kinds of things that you can portray in science fiction. And, and you're gonna deliberately, for the most part, telling the story, you're deliberately going to set up this alien character as different than us. And, and, and we wrestle with those kinds of things on earth that have been for centuries, if not millennia, the differences between cultures and how we relate to each other because you know someone else comes from someplace else and they believe in different things, they dress a different way, they eat different food, all the belief systems are different. How do you relate to those people? How do you get along with them? You know, how do you resolve conflicts with them, et cetera? And a lot of times in science fiction, all of the norms that we know as a culture um, and as a human race are challenged in science fiction. You can challenge those things. You can demonstrate how people interact with each other by putting them into the future and showing a different world based on the tech that might exist at that time. Uh, Black Mirror does this as a series. Uh, you can take the technology you have and you can throw it into the future and then, and then examine how people live and react with each other if they were given this kind of technology, how it would change their lives. All those things to me is what, you know, science fiction opens all those doors to, to, uh, to give us a window into uh, who we are and how we behave with each other. So mm -hmm. it, give, it gives us a lot of tools as well because science fiction has traditionally come up with new language and new ideas that give us thoughts we wouldn't otherwise have had because you have things like Frankenstein, Big Brother, brave new world and we wouldn't have any way of really expressing ideas about uh, totalitarian political regimes unless we had 1984 to fall back on and give us these metaphors and ideas that we can use to put our thoughts together and express what we mean it sounds a lot like the the there's a there's a term in psychology called cognitive dissonance which describes the stress caused from perceiving contradictory information or information that challenges closely held beliefs and it sounds to me like you, you know, that maybe you might agree that science fiction plays a role in easing cognitive dissonance. You can take the circumstance we might have, you know, today, and I'm wondering, you know, uh, if any of the uh, current Star Trek shows, just as an example, uh, science fiction shows, I think um, 
will tap upon what is actually happening in society today as we speak. I mean, we're, mm -hmm. we're now experiencing uh, nationally, if not even on the world stage sometimes, this concept of people not believing their own eyes and ears, not believing what they've actually lived through and experienced, but believing what someone's telling them, which is patently insane um, mm -hmm. and, and captivated by it, almost like a cult, which is basically what it is. The last conclave, we, we discussed uh, the power of storytelling to shape reality and, and the power that, that cult leaders can have over controlling and shaping our views. Yes. And, it, you know, in 1984, taps upon all that to some degree, um, getting information from a source and only believing that information and not mm -hmm. actually believing, again, in some cases, your own eyes and ears. Um, you know, I mean, if somebody's dying from a disease and they deny that they have the disease as they're dying from the disease uh, i don't know how much farther you can go into the rabbit hole of, of, of cultism if you're if, if if that's what's happening i that's that's insane that's a plot for a science fiction movie um i worked on a series recently 4400 and the character i played believed in conspiracy theories to the point that he believed his own daughter was a creature Okay, not human anymore mm. because wow. he listened to somebody on the radio who talked about that you know uh and that's the character i actually played in that episode the whole entire episode was not quite that way but that's what my storyline was and uh and i have since not really seen any other series projects or, or episodics that or even films that dealt with like a, on a societal scale, how do you tackle that or present that in the, in a future setting, you know, and, and see how that society behaves because uh, that is a profoundly destructive force on a small scale. It can be a group of people, you know, Jim Jones size or smaller, right? Yeah. Not a big deal. It's an enclave. It's a, it's an, it's an outpost. It's a, it doesn't have any effect on voting here for, for, for political leaders and uh, running the country and uh, what, you know, how the budget is spent, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't have anything to do with that kind of stuff. So those groups can exist without having a real impact of any kind, really, on, on society as a whole. But these things here, you know, in which your own representative powers that be in government that's supposed to be <laughs> overseeing the, 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 the running of the country are supporting yeah. the most bizarre, crazy crap. That's when it becomes, on that scale, it's absolutely lethal to yes. any absolutely. intelligent, you know, uh, democratic system. And so that stuff is, to me, where it's almost like marching through this dystopian, if you will, sci-fi story. Because that's what it is. It's a dystopian sci-fi story. We're already there. Yeah, We're already there. it's kind of hard to write science fiction about something while it's actually happening. Yeah, right. And, and <laughs> how, how do you talk about a dystopia when you're in one? Yeah, yeah I, I think there's one series that kind of deals with some of the the, the, uh, the two sides of, of something like that coin is uh, Raised by Wolves, uh, Ridley Scott. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Ah, that thing is crazy uh, intense. And they he, they choose to go sort of to that way in the future, way in the future, with this war back and forth between two different belief systems. Yeah. It's two different belief systems that literally come to blows, which is fascinating. I mean, there, there you, you have it. I mean, we've experienced it in, in, in some instances in the history in the United States. We did it with the 
the Salem witch trials here on a small scale and localized scale. We've, you know, we've had to deal with these kinds of things. Europe had to deal with, you know, Protestant versus Catholic. And I mean, you know, there's all these different ways that, that the Catholics versus the Muslims. We've done this thing before in terms of belief systems. And, uh, and we still, to some degree, do have these kinds of conflicts today. But um, that's one of the things that I love about science fiction is that it, 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 can, it can cover important social and sociopolitical topics, but otherwise might cause them to reject the idea out of hand if it was presented to them in context. It abstracts it just enough to prevent someone from engaging their like rejection filters and gets mm -hmm. them to start thinking about things like the, the classic uh, original series episode where like, you know, how are these guys different? Oh, he's black and white on the other side. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's yeah. um. That's Perfect actually example. how. Yeah. That that's yeah. how the the concept of robotics was invented. The the original, I think it's 1921 play R U R, Rossum's Universal Robotics was a political play about what if you could create mechanical men to do all your work for you, and they get treated as an underclass, and it was about the proletariat and all of this thing and. The term for worker was robota in the original language, which became robot. So science fiction has always been about this idea of looking at projecting political themes into the future as a way of dealing with them as they're happening. And there's a rich seam of that. We can we can talk about that till the cows come home. Sure. And also a forbidden planet as well. The, the idea of things coming back that we thought we'd evolved beyond is a big theme in forbidden planet. That's something we need to to link to because that's definitely something that comes up in this film yes um in that case the id you know uh, mm. sort of a Jungian sort of concept in, in forbidden planet and also time machine you know he tries to go through time going forward in time in the future thinking he can get away from all the turmoil and the war and the yeah the, this increasing hubris that we yeah. move forward and we get past it and it'll <laughs> we'll never come back we've, <laughs> we've, got, we've figured it out and then and he back it all comes it, and he keeps finding it over and over and over yeah yeah <laughs> The Morlocks yeah. are always waiting under the ground to come up and devour you. Yeah, uh, I kind of want to pick the more specific one for this one. Uh, this is also interesting to find out uh, on my end. Gene Roddenberry cited Forbidden Planet as an influence. How much of a creative debt do you personally think Star Trek owes to Forbidden Planet? Um, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a percentage. I don't think the majority of it to Forbidden Planet because, I mean, Forbidden Planet deals, again, we talked about it earlier, you know, is dealing with basically the, the, the id, the, the dark side of human behavior. <clears throat> and it's simply, they take that and they manifest that in the form of this alien creature. Um, that is nothing more than the thoughts of this man based on this alien technology that he's able that it, it's, it's able to manifest this creature, uh, which is fascinating in itself. Um, but Star Trek, you know, as a series is about exploration. It's about exploration. To me, I think there would be other films that would be more influential. And I can't really think of one offhand that he might be influenced by. I could think of, you know, like uh, Twilight Zone and things like that to, a, to mm. an example that might be more uh, influential to something like Star Trek, where you do have a few episodes that deal with space travel, landing on another planet, discovering this or that. You know, what was it? The one with Roddy McDowell's famous one, where he he lands on the planet, planet of the Apes, spaceship. No, no, 
this is a, a Twilight Zone, black and white Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah. Where he lands on the planet and he's terrified about coming out of the ship because he's afraid of what's outside. And his, his uh, partner, the other astronaut who's with him, is injured. And he doesn't, he doesn't survive the, the, uh, the mission. But he tells him, you have to go out. You have to go outside. Don't worry. You know, it'll be fine. If there's people out there. They'll be just like us or whatever comes out like that. So he tries to, to convince him to go outside the ship. Because otherwise, what's the point of them making the, the journey, the long journey, and him sacrificing his life if he never goes outside the ship? And so finally he does. And he sees this beautiful woman human looks just like just like you know a, an earthling and then some other earthlings that are there and they there's he's so impressed he says oh my god you're right you know they they do like they look just like him and they take him to a place where he can live like it looks just like an earth home they said oh we re recreated this based on where you came from and such and such and blah 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 so we felt you'd be comfortable here and then they close the door they leave him and then he can't get out of the door he's like locked in and all of a sudden this big wall opens up and these people are all staring at him and he's a subject in a zoo. He's in the zoo and the last line of this in that episode is, you're right, they are just like us. <laughs> oh. oh my God. I remember so that cool. one. That's, oh. the, that's, the, that's the kind of stuff that, that, that I think that Roddenberry the stories they told in Star Trek, that's the kind of stuff that, I mean, we wrestled with it on our, on our series. We wrestled with uh, where does the soul go after death? Mm, yeah. We wrestled with that. We wrestled with origins, with evolution. Um, we, we wrestled with that. Um, you know, we, there was a lot of things. We wrestled with, you know, assuming that someone is bad, aggressive, evil based on how they look. Oh, like, I remember that one. Yeah. Remember that one? Yes. Yeah. Based on their appearance, you find out that the alien that looks like the predator, basically, just this hideous, ugly, monstrous, frightening creature. You know, uh, one of our crew has been told that they are the aggressors, that they are the terrorists, that they're the ones marauding mm. and killing. And it turns out the humans who look just like humans are the ones mm. who are the aggressors, the ones that are terrorizing the other race. And they're the ones that doing, are doing all the bad things to them. At the very end, you realize the tables were turned. You just assumed that what the humans were telling you was true because of the way the aliens looked. They well, looked the easy bad. answer is always tempting, isn't it? The, the, isn't it, the answer that, that just feels, feels more easy to assimilate into your mind. You just go <laughs> with it because it's easier than actually thinking things through and yes. doing oh, well, the work. And, and, it's, it, and it's natural. It's, mm. it's, it's part of our DNA. You know, my buddy just, you know, he said the other day, he says, well, at present, we don't have world wars. You know, we've had world wars since we could pick up a rock and throw it. And at present, we don't have a world war. We could have a big fat one that could take us out, but we don't have one right now. And we haven't had one since World War II. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that we have sort of evolved to a point where we've gotten maybe a little farther along from being just a giant, violent, killing thing. But I talked about, you know, so he asked me about what do you, why, why we've been killing each other and doing this for so long. He says, we evolved. I said, well, we evolved from more than likely a, 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 a chimpanzee-like uh, species, as it were, that's no longer here. We, that species obviously went away. But, you know, we said, well, what about the bonobo chimps who are peaceful and they don't do the kind of killing and stuff that a regular chimpanzee says, well, you know, the race that we evolved from, 
wasn't like the bonobo. They were different. And, you know, here we are. And we are an aggressive, combative, violent species. That's what we are, you know? And we think we're all that because we have a brain. Um, so now you're giving, you know, a loaded gun to a five-year-old. Essentially, you give, you give this violent race a, a large brain, may have the capacity of doing all these things. You're not going to be able to breed that out. It's going to take a long time. Yeah, maybe at the moment we've just reached the point where we can at least imagine what we would look like if we had got past it. Yeah, and we can at least tell stories about it and say yeah, this we, is what it will be like. But yeah, we're not this quite is, there yet. Oh, absolutely, and you know, <laughs> and and we've evolved to the point where we can actually try to discover and figure out uh, what our origins may be in terms of just the whole the entire universe. But ultimately, that the, the the path that we're taking, I you know, talk to people. I've talked to a history teacher once about the fact. I said, well, the founding fathers created a document that was supposed to do, to help the country function, a document that was set up to govern the country. 270 years ago. Can you imagine creating a document today designed to, to govern the country 270 years from now? What will life be like 270 years from now? And that's a science fiction story in itself. We have to imagine where our technology and advancements are going to go. AI will probably mm -hmm. become sentient. And as Asimov writes about in Robots of Dawn, they may well need constitutional rights they may well need human rights because they're that smart that they have reached a level of consciousness because of the computing power that we've been able to come up with. AI is going to dominate us very shortly in this century. And if 270 years from now, how would your country be governed? What would your belief systems be like? Will you still have traditional religions the way that they are now? Will people still be fighting um, over those religions or battling each other over those things? How will we be living our daily lives on this planet with a population over what, 8 billion, maybe 9 billion people with the resources shrinking as they are? Will we eventually come together you know, as a global society and put the priorities not at the very top for the 5% of the people in the, who have everything on the planet, or will we have a, a more shared equal sort of effort to try to create a society or a world that we can actually survive on. You know, we can't all just hop over to Mars, man. This place <laughs> has to be something that's, you know, um, in Robots of Dawn, an Asimov story that they're Martian colonies and they have fixed populations and everything is perfect and pristine on their Martian colonies. And they want nothing to do with anybody from Earth. So Earth has been relegated to the trash heap in terms of this horrible you know, godforsaken, you know, rabble-filled mm. place. And they want nothing to do with anyone from Earth. They are born and raised on Mars and they have a fixed population that can never go beyond a certain number. So it's fascinating. Again, and in that story, obviously, uh, robots, the androids, it's about the murder of an android. And that's illegal yeah. to kill an android. So how do you how do you govern? How do you? I mean, the founding fathers have managed to do this. That document they created is technically still functional and malleable today, 270 years from when they wrote it. Man, I mean, come on. They, if they if they were dropped in the middle of Times Square, their heads would explode. You know, True. jet planes and high tech and cars and I mean, come on, man. Nothing. They would not have been able to imagine uh, anything like that. Uh, and what will it be like? Again, 270 years from now, they dropped us in the middle of this time square where our heads are going to explode. Even mm -hmm. with the technical knowledge we have now, we cannot imagine 
what that would be like 270 years from now. That's the, uh, that, that reminds me of that meme that was making the circuit of uh, somebody asks, uh, the founding father was asked today, should they regulate automatic weapons in California? The what in the where? <laughs> <laughs> the what in the where? <laughs> so you brought up like, yeah, the rights of robots, which eventually will become a pressing issue. And then also the, the violence within humanity and these two aspects really touch on uh characters like robbie the robot in forbidden planet which eventually spawn characters like spock uh data and of course your character tuvok um and you kind of get that that sort of same vibe with you know data uh in his episode of measure of a man where we were basically putting the rights of a robot on trial uh or for tuvok uh, those those uh, those base uh, uh, violence with inherent to the the Vulcan species, uh, we all kind of have these characters that are that are non-human that are still seeking their humanity and where they fit in society. Uh, why do you think science fiction so often features characters like these? Well, again, because science fiction reflects a lot of times reflects the way we are as people. Um, you know, and, and my character, you know, the Vulcan species, they were so violent that they almost wiped themselves off the, you know, off the planet. So they understood that if they didn't do anything uh, to stop that, they weren't going to exist. They were going to cease to exist. The uh, estimate for intelligent species that might be in our galaxy alone, which is 100,000 light years across, is shockingly low. I mean, it's ridiculously low. Um, made by astrophysicists, way lower than what the Drake equation originally uh, calculated or predicted. And it's because one of those reasons is that the factors is not just obviously the, the variables that come into place to, to, for a civilization to rise, but the, the, also the possibility that civilization may wipe itself out. Great That's filter. one of the variables that they have to look at is that and they may rise to an intelligent species and civilization and then completely annihilate themselves. We are capable of doing that today. We can do that. The very least set ourselves back to the Stone Age, you know, with maybe a handful of people living underground in some whatever cave for I don't know how many years. We can wipe out all of our technology, wipe out all of our living space, wipe out most of our planets and, and animals and everything else just with nuclear weapons alone. We can do that right now, today. And, and the threat of that always looms. The characters like the Tuvox character being so violent, they were going to annihilate each other, that they had to come up with something. And so you have you you would wonder, since that's an alien species, they might have had more time to come to grips with that and then figure out a way around it. And the same thing I was talking about before, 270 years from now, 300 years from now, will we be able to <clears throat> overcome that? So the hmm. Star Trek world deals with, first of all, cash and who has the most of it doesn't factor mm -hmm. into Star Trek or Star Trek world. I mean, that's not how the society is set up post-scarcity so, yeah it's not about who's got all the gold it's about sort of collective getting together and figuring things out on a collective basis and that that is kind of where we'd have to go you know in that direction in order to avoid you know again annihilating ourselves we have to share the earth's resources figure out a way to uh, live within the limits of these resources Yes, there possibly will be colonization of other worlds, whether it be Mars or someplace else. We have to figure out how we're going to live off world as well. What are we going to do with all the people? Are we going to limit our population? You know, China tried it not that long ago. 
they, mm-hmm. they're, they're at the breaking point of their numbers and they realize, well, we got to do something. So they were limiting the birth rate of their population. They were seeing into the future in that respect. So um, I think Jim- the, the robot character, yes, on Forbidden Planet, absolutely. It's the, it's the, the, uh, the, the, it's a machine. It's, it's, it's base reasoning. You know, Tuvok's character is base logic. It doesn't, it, the emotion just doesn't play a factor in anything like mm-hmm. that. Now, once in a while, my character had to, you know, yeah. had to rely on something <laughs> like that in order to get him out of trouble. Um, but, but for the most part, you know, that's not what the reliance was. The reliance is one cold, hard logic. And China, in their limiting of their, of their birth rate, was cold, hard logic. There was no emotion in that. It's logic. It was simply based on a practical, functional logic. You know, we, gang, we got a problem here. There's too many of us. What are we going to suppose, do? Yeah, I suppose a question, whether you're dealing with a robot or an alien or someone from another country always comes down to the same one. I'm not like you. You're not like me. What are we going to do? How are we going to work this out? Yes. And it's absolutely. a question that will always need to be answered, whether you're talking to Robbie the robot or whoever. Yeah. And, and I don't know if uh, I think worldwide we are going to be in a population crisis. That is going to happen. The population is going to explode by 2050 and it'll probably crash not long after that. It is going to happen because there's no brakes, there's no controls on it. It's just going to be masses and masses and masses of people. We have belief systems in, in, on the planet that still don't want you to use contraception for God's sakes. And that's a lot of people that are, you know, the population is going to continue to grow, continue to grow, continue to grow, continue to grow. And it's not only the resources that each individual takes, it's also the, it's also the, uh, the waste that that individual produces, which we also have to deal with. Yeah. So that is, those decisions, man, are cultural and societal and global. And somebody somewhere has to come up with the plan and idea and people have to be aware of and educated to some degree about all of that stuff and you're you're, this is where we come back to science fiction coming up with ideas and testing out in a safe way maybe we do this maybe maybe we do that yeah so it sounds to me kind of like characters like those are vehicles for the exploration of the human condition science fiction is a is a thought experiment that we can engage in as a species and kind of test out ideas. I think that's one of the one of the reasons why it was so important that during the 50s and 60s with like the Twilight Zone episodes that you were talking about, some of my favorites, like the one with, um, I blanked on his name, where he's in the library, in the basement, and all the Burgess bombs Meredith, off. wasn't oh, it? Burgess yeah. Meredith, Burgess yeah. Meredith. Yes, And then yes. he comes out and he's like, finally, all the time in the world to read all the books I ever wanted to, you know, but like, like all of these moments where they were showing people, this is what it looks like when there's an, and you know, it really built a sympathy within the mind of the public of like, this, these are hot. This is a hot stove. We've already touched it once and we realized that it burns and we could burn the whole house down, figuratively speaking. Yes. And, and, you know, there was a lot of uh, movement at the time too. There's, you know, the, the, sorry, the establishment of the time wanted to do away with all this stuff is subversive, you know? So Twilight Zone was constantly being subjected to like, you know, oh, this is subversive thought. You know, these, these writers who are writing about, you know, what, like books like A Last Babylon and things showing what a, what a post-nuclear Holocaust future would look like were, were seen as subversive. You know, and they weren't banned because, you know, America doesn't tend to ban books, but um, well, not until today. 
Not until uh, recently, no. Yeah, well, I mean, there was always yeah. attempts to. There, there have yeah. been attempts to, but in general, like those, those tend to be more privately driven and religiously driven. Than... Bringing it back, you also touched a couple of things here that that I, I was interested to, to hear from you about. The, I, re, I remember seeing uh, some of your astronomy photos, and it seems like you have a passion for astronomy because you mentioned the, about the size of the galaxy. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I started uh, pursuing astronomy when I was uh, uh, in my 30s, and and I just did it on my own. I, nobody, you know, sort of took my hand and guided me or showed me anything. I just decided, well, you know, I'd like to you know, to get a small telescope and take a look at the, the planets with Saturn, Jupiter, the moon, things like that are really impressive if you have a, a halfway distance scope. It doesn't have to be that expensive at all, but just something to be able to look at them and see the detail on them. And of course, once I started doing that, then I went, you know, I just continued to expand the hobby and, and the number of telescopes, the sizes of them, um, the types of them, and, uh, and to start looking at more objects in deep space. And since that time, I've always been mostly an optical astronomer. And um, so just, just looking through the eyepiece and seeing it with naked eye. And only recently have I gotten into doing photography because of the nature of the equipment that's now available. Mm -hmm. um, what they are designing for telescopes now is absolutely insane. You can image a nebula with colors, okay? And in, inside of an, it takes about an hour to do it. Instead of buying a giant piece of glass, a big refractor with uh, that's, you know, eight, 10, $20,000 plus the CCD cameras and the laptop and everything else. Oh, and four or five hours a night for three or four nights in a row to image the same thing. My telescope that I bought will do it in four minutes and it's done. And uh, so in compared to the little one that the portable one that they just designed, mine is bigger, not that much. It's still relatively portable. Um, and it's not a competition. <laughs> yes, it, it, it is. It is. It is. It is a stunning instrument, and I did not own a computerized telescope up until I got that one. I do the imaging now for deep space uh, objects. It doesn't do planets and the moon. It's only designed for doing deep space objects, which I was always looking at with naked eye. Now I can see the structure of these objects in detail. Um, I've seen, you know, uh, galaxies that have supernovas that have gone off, and I can see the supernova in that galaxy. I've tracked asteroids. Um, I've done a project with uh, cooperation with NASA on an asteroid occultation with this telescope. It'll do exoplanet transits. Um, oh, it'll wow. Do, it'll do, uh, oh. you know, it, it's pretty damned amazing, this telescope. So my appreciation for astronomy in general has, has, has been there as long as my appreciation for science fiction. Space science is something that came right alongside that. Because at the end of the day, we started as nothing more than gas and uh, helium and, and hydrogen gas. We're able to look back and examine where we came from. To quote that Carl Sagan, we are the universe's way we of are experiencing the itself. Exactly. We are experiencing ourselves. We are star stuff. And in fact, we are. It's so. a truly terrifying thought. I mean, the <laughs> makes me just feel minuscule 
the idea of staring out across such distances. I remember looking up, you know, the largest and the smallest things in the universe and the biggest things we can find. And this star is bigger than this star, than this collection of stars, than this globular cluster, than this great accumulation of matter that's loosely bound together, that's bigger than multiple galaxies. And it, it's mind blowing, but it's also terrifying. And there's part of me that thinks, no, I don't want to know all of this, this is too much for my tiny little mammalian brain. It's too big, it's too far. You got a glimpse yeah. of the total perspective vortex, did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you take, if you know, I'll give you the real shocker. I mean, if you really wanna know what, and what are you talking about in terms of perspective? If you really want a, an idea of how, how vast it is, if you take a grain of sand, one grain of sand, put it on your fingertip, and stretch your arm out up to the sky, stretch your arm out. The, the amount of space that that little grain of sand covers, in that tiny little space, they have found 5,000 galaxies. That horrifies me. That, that is, <laughs> there's a terror to that, as well as a wonder, there's a terror that anything could be happening in any of those galaxies that we don't know about and we right. never will that and we cannot know about you can draw a line around everything we can ever possibly know because of the limits of the speed of light and it's uh it, it is it is terrifying to think about the, the scales involved and the distances involved and then to think that on the cosmic scale we are actually surprisingly massive we're bigger than 99.9 .9 of things in the planet most things are bacteria or plankton or, or we are actually gigantic and we are tiny compared to yeah. what's out there oh absolutely and what's really crazy is if you go far enough out there we should find an exact duplicate of ourselves and in fact an exact duplicate of this show that we're on right now <gasps> if you go far enough out there theoretically according to astrophysics we should find a duplicate everything well we in a, in an infinite universe yes in an infinite universe but if the universe is anything less than infinite then the chance becomes infinitesimal so yeah, the, that's the big know. question is it infinite does it go that's on forever even more horror even more yeah. terror that you're bringing into my life <laughs> <laughs> sounds to me enough, like it all is of enough you. to make your head hurt but here we go i mean that's what we're you know, we're dealing with, you know, we're dealing with uh, science fiction and science fiction in a, as a genre examines that kind of thing. You know, um, you know, I know we were. I don't see you, how you could examine it any other way, really. Yeah. Yeah. Some of these concepts are so big and they're so, so yeah. great. You need science fiction just to have the tools to imagine some of these things in any meaningful way. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, 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 again, when I look back at Forbidden Planet, it is. It is a science fiction show. They, 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 you know, the astronauts do land on this, this alien world. Mm. And, um, and it's interesting that it's almost like, um, it's almost like the uh, Martian Chronicles and Ray Bradbury's story. Oh. Um, it's similar to that because the alien civilization is long gone. The, 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 the aliens, the technology is still there. The buildings are still there, but they're gone. And they don't really go into detail as to what happened to them. Um, and the Martian Chronicles, since they have found this advanced Martian civilization that's so much older than ours, the one question they want to ask or find out is if they knew and found and discovered the meaning of life. 
which is interesting, right? From a science fiction thing, it's interesting that the humans in that story figure that since they're farther ahead in evolution mm. and intelligence, have they discovered the meaning of life? And, they, and in the Martian Chronicles, what they discover is the Martians, the, 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 the information they get from, the, from that advanced civilization is that they figured that life is its own meaning. Life yeah. is its own meaning, which means... Real fortune cookie answer that they got. Well, there, it's, it's they? basically that, it's basically that, that you know, we're born to do what we do. We are here to do what we do. You know, the bees do what they do. The polar bear does what it does. The, uh, you know, uh, the creatures on the planet are born to do what they do. We are born to do what we do. You know, sometimes um, since I read that. Yeah, yeah I read it when our, I was about 16. Yeah, our purpose essentially is to, is to survive. Our purpose is to procreate. That's really what we're here for. I mean, that's what we're just another life form on this planet doing what all the other life forms do. We're just able to think about it more. They, 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 in, in, in Forbidden Planet, that alien species is gone and all that's left behind is their technology. So it's interesting as to, you know, to try to, they, they, to figure out what happened to them. You know, they don't really spend a lot of time discussing what happened to them in that movie. Yeah, they, they can make an assumption that presumably they had an id and they had their own id monsters, but we, we can't know that. There's no, there's no, yeah, there's no physical evidence. If, I mean, if they land on the planet and the alien technology is all destroyed and everything's all mm. rubble and stuff like that, well, then they can assume that, okay, there was a battle and a war and they wiped themselves out or if there was some remnants of bodies or something like that laying around and there's nothing. It's just that they abandoned everything and left. It looks like they just left the place because all the stuff still works. It's all still functional. So where did they go? And they never examined that. And I think if it was a modern version of Forbidden Planet, they'd want to examine that and figure out what the hell happened there. Uh, what is it? The character from your British sci-fi, uh, uh, Quartermass. Quartermass. Oh, Quartermass in the pit Quartermass and so and forth. Yes, yes. In, the pit, in the pit. That alien, the Martians came, they were warlike. They were warlike. They were destroying themselves. They were killing each other. Then they were an advanced alien species. They had technology beyond anything they had on Earth. And they, what were they doing? Killing themselves. And they, you know, went in, in that story, they end up inhabiting, you know, their, their spirit or whatever, their, their power inhabits mm. the people. That it's a, it becomes manifested in human beings and they start turning on each other. They're, they haven't changed either in the future. The same thing as a time machine. We keep going, keep going, keep going. We still find the same shit. So yeah. <laughs> the question is, again, in terms of the estimate of intelligent life in the universe, yeah, those numbers are small. They're frighteningly small. Uh, the number that, that they came up with, and this is just three or four months ago that I read this, in the galaxy, which is, again, 100,000 light years across the Milky Way, that's a shitload of planets and stars. They estimate only 35 to 200 intelligent civilizations that might exist right now. And the favored number is 35. 35. 35. We may as, we may as well be butt-ass alone, okay? Yeah, I mean, the chances of us even stumbling across any of them by accident are Forget it. next to Forget nothing. It. Infinitesimal as far as our brains can comprehend. That's correct. And so where does that leave us? We're it, man. We might as well be it. And <sighs> that's it for this planet. This, this place is here, man. We managed to get here. 
the entire universe could have been spawned without the ability to produce life. Mm. Because the multiverse concept is what they're believing in now. They're mm. theorizing multiverse. If there's multiverses, some of them will not be capable of producing life. Mm. Because the same variables that go into the formation of life on Earth, just the, just the shit that has to go right in our solar system, the formation of Earth, the conditions of, this, of, the, of the solar system, the Goldilocks zone, the Earth itself, the size, the iron core, goddamn everything. There's a thousand variables just for Earth alone. Yeah. The universe has to have a whole train load of shit that has to go right in order to allow for all the elements to come together for life. Yeah. Back, uh, if you want to read something that'll really chill you uh, right down to your toes is uh, read about vacuum decay. And you think about if you're talking about the multiverse, you know, there's got to be some universes where vacuum decay has occurred, you know. Right. Yeah. There's just certain elements that didn't line up in that multiverse and there's no life at all. I mean, that that's crazy. And that's if, if one accepts the fact that there's a multiverse, because they're still trying to figure out where this one came from. Yeah. You know, and and as a so on the other hand, if you accept that theory that that there's there's different uh, bubbling pots in different universes that right. could produce different things, it also makes life inevitable as well. Rare, but rare. inevitable sooner or later. Sooner or later, and very rare. And and even if you accept the bubbles of universes, where did those start from? You know, <laughs> you don't have a <laughs> we don't have a beginning point, which is what we absolutely crave as a as a species we, we crave a beginning a middle and an end we I, have to have a starting point and we don't have that i like your, no. uh, your your point though going back to the ray bradbury martian chronicles you know the 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 you know the meaning of life is that we are to be what we are um it's a very sort of alan watts buddhist kind of perspective to it you know we are just we are here to do what we do we, we are just one window through which the universe experiences itself right, right. You know, and that we should just be chill with the fact that we're an animal species that does what we do exactly and that's simply what the martian chronicles sort of theory you know puts forth is that yeah this is it this is what we do you know there's you don't have to overthink it um yeah we're kind of we, comfort in that yeah yeah there is if you think about it it is actually i mean if you think about where we came from how we got here we're, we're evolving and you know and we will continue to evolve as long as we're capable of doing so and eventually what's really interesting is is that our technology is going to surpass natural evolution our technology will take us beyond all of this this will be like the stone age uh, what we have today will be like the stone age it, it, it will be as if we just dropped out of the trees if people in the future look back at us now, you know, compared to what it could be. We will potentially evolve to become a machine planet. We will potentially evolve beyond corporeal bodies. That can happen um, eventually. And what will that be like as far as us as a species when we are no longer, you know, corporeal? When we're a machine planet, we're, we're mostly machine, you know, um, mostly robotic, mostly a consciousness in a gel, you know, um, or plasma. Partly man, partly machine. Only some of us lucky enough to be British. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> 
so kind of to switch gears a bit, we're going to start to wrap up a little bit. Um, Tim, what would you say if someone were to order you to comb the desert? <laughs> I don't want to look for that shit. <laughs> Fair enough, because you didn't end up finding it. <laughs> All right. And with that, how severe a source of cinemania do you believe Forbidden Planet to be? Um, well, I think it's a big source uh, of cinemania. You know, um, it's a classic in its own right. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it should absolutely be part of that. Um, it's a, a major candidate. You know, I can rattle off a few more down the line, but that one certainly deserves to be part of that. Certainly. Mm -hmm. Would you need were you uh, to scrutinize any other films of Cinemania, which would you choose? I think to date, and if I had to put at the top of the list of something that's, that's worthy of Cinemania, it's the original concept of the Planet of the Apes. Sorry, that's, mm. that to me is the pinnacle of man, just, just original science, pure, unadulterated science fiction storytelling. That's what yeah. that is. Planet of the Apes. That original concept is just to me one of the most fascinating. Absolutely, that, the most fascinating. That shocker ending too. Oh, it's just the just the bare bones concept, man. I mean, I was around. You guys weren't around. I was around when that first one came out, and oh boy, jaw dropping. We came mm -hmm. out of the theater. We were blown away. We could not believe what we had just seen. It was just wow. insane. Um, never forget it. Never, you know, even the later incarnations are all fun to watch, but the original storyline, good God almighty, man. Woo! I know, I, I found it in incredibly shocking the first time I saw it. I mean, the idea of allowing Charlton Heston into space, I for one, <laughs> just <laughs> collapsed. I believe the name is pronounced Charlton Heston. Yeah, and, 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 and on the opposite side of the... <laughs> On the opposite side of the coin of that, I, the, the two top movies, well, I want to say they're two top, roughly the two top that, that, that I would put in, the, in that category, but for different, uh, different reasons would be either The Abyss is one and, mm. um, and recently Ad Astra, number two, that, you know, that turkey man is just, I could not. I had so many problems with that film. Absolutely oh. appalling, appallingly bad. We need you to send a radio message. So let's move you to another planet to do it because we have no better way of transmitting <laughs> your words than to move you to a radio yeah. booth yeah. halfway across the solar system. What yeah. was that all about? How dare they, frankly? Yeah, and let's, let's plant a research space station lab, you know, all the way out there in the middle of nowhere with giant baboons on them to study mm. whatever in the fuck they're studying oh, yeah. a, ra a radiant wave of energy that becomes more intense the further away it goes from its source i mean come on the more i hear about That's... this movie the more i'm like this is definitely something we should be looking into oh you you definitely you know as far as the flip side of cinemania the uh you know the the not worthy side of cinemania that that oh. that thing is that thing is at the top dude and i i i am just appalled at the amount of money they spent to make it and all this 
just the goddamn worst thing I've ever seen. I mean, it's just, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I've seen a few mm-hmm. in the past. I do have a couple of that I don't like, like uh, the abyss and, a, and maybe one or two others. Um, AI is one of them, maybe the abyss and some other stuff. But I, I believe you had some strong opinions about Event Horizon. And, and Event Horizon I put up there at the top. And Event Horizon only because, only because they had the concept. And, it, and for that matter, so did Ad Astra, had a wonderful concept. They, they could have just played that thing so well. Um, but, and what you, all you see is, you know, all I can envision is the, is the idiot sitting around the conference table with the three Blackberries talking about, you know, redlining the script and we got to put in this, we got to put in that, we got to put in this. <laughs> yeah, that story's great, but we got to put in this and we got to put the idiot who can't read. Anyway, that, the, 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 the Event Horizon had the concept. And again, Somebody in the room said, you know, well, we, we have to put in blood and guts and horror. We have to make it horror. It's mm-hmm. not scary. There's nothing happening. It's too, you know, it's a brilliant concept. That concept is brilliant. You know, a ship that can jump to the opposite side of the galaxy, that can warp time and space, that can make that transit with a crew. And then the ship comes back and there's no crew. What happened to the crew? It's a and they're going to examine, oh my God, man. You can yeah. open up all kinds of, would, you know, can they take the ship, it has the drive, to the, where it went and find out what happened to the crew? Is the crew still on the ship, but in a different dimension? And they interact with them from time to, dude, you could have all now, kinds Now, Star of- Trek did that. Ah, exactly. Based into a different direct dimension. Well, I'm really, I'm seeing the telltale signs of Cinemania as we started <laughs> to discuss Event Horizon. So perhaps you can act as... Pontifex of presentment when our conclave meets to scrutinize Event Horizon. Perhaps. Well, we can scrutinize that one, or we can do Ad Astra. I can tell you right, Ad Astra, mm. that's got even more to scrutinize, let me tell you. Uh, you're gonna scrutinize have to, Ed Asna. Everybody's going to have to watch it. You guys are going to all have to go watch it. Uh, you haven't seen it. Uh, uh, Andre hasn't seen it, right? Ethan, Correct. you haven't seen it? No. Okay, so the only one that's seen it is, uh, okay. I've seen it. <laughs> Yeah, you and, I, you and I are the only ones who <laughs> had to had to sit through the misery of that film. Um, <laughs> guys, you're going to see some shit in there that y- you're just going to be shaking your head, man. You're just going to oh, be boy. shaking your head. It's the most outrageously stupid stuff mm. that they put in this film. Where the story, the story, the story, the, the actual concept is amazing. I mean, it's a really cool story they could have unfolded that story uh tommy lee jones plays um uh, brad Pitt. oh yeah the father and he's plays yeah, the father. yeah and and he is he was sent on a mission to uh discover or explore life in the outer reaches of the solar system mm. with a crew on a ship and they lose track and touch of them they can't Oof. reach them they can't find them what happened to the ship that's the story and I would have watched a film just with Tommy Lee Jones and Brad Pitt acting opposite each other for a while. They could have kept it simple and it would have been fine, it, but they have to a, it's a story <laughs> bring in the monkeys. Yeah, they have to bring story. the monkeys into it. It's Planet of the Apes all over Wait, again. And oh my moon God. buggies and moon buggies. What's with the moon buggies, man? <laughs> I haven't seen the this. Moon I've got buggies. To... What the hell was that supposed to be? That's nuts. Going, are you serious? Are you actually bloody serious? Well, you can't be. You got. You're mad. You're mad. Nobody's gonna be doing that, man. I don't care what kind of future you got on the moon. They're not gonna be doing that. 
so yes, the, 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 the simple arc, the arc of the story should have been him getting to find out what happened to his father. It's his father who's a hero. He's like a space-sparing legend, this guy. It was a massive missed opportunity. The really good story was good story. all in the subtext and they ignored it to just look at... 100%. Fancy. Yeah. And they could, it could have been, you know, get what that, what's that? Do it now. It's an hour and a half. Don't make it any longer than the next pee break. Just like 90 minutes, 95, maybe, you know, mm. 100 minutes. Just get in there. Yeah. Get that art. Get that going there. Tell a good story. The concept is there. They just, there was no execution of it. So, no, dear so listeners, it. that is that is Ad Astra. If you wish to Ad experience Astra. this piece of Cinemania, we will maybe, perhaps, scrutinize in future. Uh, while we wrap up our conclave, do you have any pluggables, any, anywhere we can find you on the internet? For me? Oh, uh, yeah. my website is uh, timrusswebpage.com. If you type in my name, Tim Russ, on Google, it's, uh, it's going to be on the front page. Uh, mm -hmm. My website is there. It talks about what I'm doing, what the appearances I'm going to be making in the next uh, six months or whatever. Uh, personal appearances. Uh, it's got my band gigs on there. Um, I post stuff on Twitter, although most of it's political. So be warned. <laughs> A lot of it's political. Be forewarned. Um, and Facebook as well. Same thing. Uh, uh, on there is Tim Russ. Uh, on Twitter is Tim Russ. You can, I mean, my picture is there. You can see it's me. Mm. And um, Instagram, I uh, think, is Tr Boken. Um, but if you, type in, <laughs> if you type in Tim Russ, eventually you see my picture. So just go into my name for all that stuff, and I, I post things on there. But again, it's all a lot of it's political, and I, every once in a while I put some gags on there just for chuckles. But uh, a lot mm -hmm. of it's political. So. Um, that's where I am. I do post my music gigs every once in a while, uh, performances. I do put clips on there once in a while for the band and stuff. Um, and trailers for the projects that I'm working on now and then. Heck I've got yeah. some stuff in the works. I've, it's all in development, so there's not much to talk about until I get it off the ground. Yeah, it's sweet. Yeah, fair enough. Well, thank you so, so, so much yes. for doing this. This is oh, this pleasure. is awesome. <laughs> Indeed, thank you very much. Uh, Those are fun topics. They're fun topics to talk about. Um, uh, I've always enjoyed them. Um, been a fan of science fiction for the vast majority of my life. So, and it's not going to change. Yeah, me too. Yeah, on a on a personal note, me and my sister, as we were sort of growing up, not much science fiction on TV in England. Not much quality science fiction at all. And the one thing we always used to watch was Star Trek. We started with Next Gen. And it kept us together because we were growing apart. We were growing up into teenagers and different people. But the only thing that we could agree on that we both wanted to do together at the same time was sit down and watch Star Trek. So it really led to us having uh, or maintaining any kind of relationship. It, it, it was brilliant. And you're a part of that. So it's, it's been a thrill for me. And would, it, would you please just uh, tell my sister Eleanor that I win and I'm the best sibling. <laughs> In your opinion, <laughs> Eleanor, uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, your brother is the best sibling, and he is. Yes, uh, and he wins yes. all the time. Uh, he knows what he's talking about. Um, he's the smartest. Um, oh yes, and, and, the, and the brightest. <gasps> yes, and 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 he's and the most knowledgeable. So just just so you know, just FYI, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, my it. whole life has led to this moment. I finally <laughs> win. <laughs> <laughs> and with this glorious victory, we must we we now adjourn this conclave. Onward. All right. Have at it.
That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Andre Luke Martinez, Andy Slack, Ethan Ireland, Zachariah Burks, Daniel Scribner, and Andrea Palladino. Produced by Ethan Ireland and Andy Slack, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Ethan Ireland, graphic design by Andy Slack, music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com and check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review wherever you find us, mention us on social media, or find us on Ko-Fi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon, the Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films, and the like. So stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC.